Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley for the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lucy Walker, and um, she has quite an uh, impressive background. She, was, uh, she earned a Wellcome Trust Traveling Fellowship, which brought her to UCSF, where she worked with Abul Abbas. She also um, gained an MRC Career Fellowship, followed by a Senior Fellowship. And um, very impressively, she was also a recipient of the Royal Society Wolfson Research Merit Award. And now she is the Professor of Immune Regulation at University College London. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you. I wonder if you can talk to us about how you became scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes. Yes, of course. Um, so really, I came at it from the perspective of being interested in immunology and uh, control of the immune response. So I did uh, a PhD in immunology and um, started to get really interested in this question of how the immune system knows whether it should be responding to something or not because um, you know, we all want our immune systems to defend us from bacteria, and uh, right now in particular viruses, uh, but we, we don't want our immune system to attack our own body. And that's what happens in autoimmune conditions like type 1 diabetes, where obviously it's attacking the pancreatic islet cells, rheumatoid arthritis, where it's attacking joints and so forth. And so I was just really interested in how this decision-making process uh, occurred. Um, so I, I really came into diabetes very much from a mechanistic perspective. And then as I started to get more into the field, I started to learn uh, more about the realities of uh, being affected by this condition and why it's so important to, to try and find uh, treatment strategies. So yeah, you, so you're a true immunologist coming from, um, from that realm and uh, you know, the puzzle of diabetes seemed to be very interesting to you. What are your thoughts about the work that's being done in immunology right now that addresses type 1 diabetes? What's sort of like the global view or the, the flyover view? Yeah, so I think there are a lot of interesting things going on at the moment. My area in particular is understanding the T-cell response. Um, and T cells uh, are pivotal cells in this sort of decision-making process as to whether you mount an immune response or not. And I think everybody probably appreciates the immune system is, is very complicated. It's got lots of different cell types. There are lots of different types of immune response that, that you can mount. And it's T cells that really decide is um, a particular type of T cell called the follicular helper T cell. Um, and these are T cells that are uh, specialized at interacting with B cells. And so this collaboration between these two different lymphocytes, T cells and B cells, is what allows antibodies to be produced. And we know in type 1 diabetes, we have these islet autoantibodies, you know, we've known for a long time, these are quite a good marker for um, who's going to develop diabetes in the future. So it sort of, it makes sense that the immune response that's going on involves this collaboration between T cells and B cells. And there's been a lot of excitement about this particular type of T cell, uh, the TFH cell in 
autoimmune diseases in general, so not just type 1 diabetes. In fact, it started in, in other autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Sjogren's. Um, and then we started looking in diabetes and, and other people as well. Um, and, you know, we can see elevations of this particular T cell in people with diabetes. And so that's quite exciting for the field of immunology and type 1 diabetes in general, because certainly in our lab, it's changed the way that we think about it. Um, you know, if you know more about what's causing the problem, you can start to think of strategies to, to deal with it. Yeah, <clears throat> it, uh, it is interesting how the other diseases um, sort of sh shone a light on, on this um, the cell type in type 1. Yeah. What was the um, progression of that? I mean, were people just sort of looking, noticing <clears throat> these elevations of follicular cells in patients' blood? And then just thought, oh, we'll look in diabetes, you know, patients as well. Yeah, so I guess there was a lot of work on these cells in mouse models, um, understanding their sort of mechanisms of action, their interactions with B cells and so on. And then people started seeing cells in human blood that looked a bit like these TFH cells. They had the same markers. And there was a lot of debate about, well, are they actually TFH or not? And, um, you know, we think that they're circulating counterparts of these TFH cells. And I think it was lupus where this was first, uh, first seen. Um, and then as, as people started to look more widely, it became clear that actually there are lots of autoimmune diseases where you get this same sort of TFH signature. Um, and then we'd also been doing some work in a mouse model where, where we saw um, we had a transcriptional signature for TFH differentiation. And we started thinking, oh, hang on, if this is going on in our mouse model, maybe it's also going on in patients. And so we started looking in patient blood samples and homing in on the memory T cells. Um, and, and we found the same thing. So just to sort of talk about what actually, you know, the real um, immune dance that's going on there basically in the, um, in the, um, the formation of type one or insulitis, I guess. So yeah. can you just walk us through that process as it's known or thought to be happening right now with the, uh, develop, with the, you know, interaction of the, the T follicular cells? Yeah, so we don't know yet exactly how follicular helper T cells fit into um, the picture of what's going on in the pancreas. So in our mouse model, we could show that T cells responding to islet autoantigens were differentiating into TFH. That's what first alerted us to this. Um, and then we looked in the mouse model for T-cell, B-cell collaboration, these germinal centers, these sort of structures that you get when T-cells talk to B-cells. And we could find those in the pancreatic lymph node. Um, and we've looked, we've looked a little bit in the pancreas, um, but it's a little bit harder because of the digestion processes that we have to do to um, be sure of the phenotype of the cells in the pancreas. So we've got more work 
that I think we need to do there. But certainly conceptually, we know that TFH produce factors that attract B cells and that activate CD8 T cells. Like uh, this CXCR5 and so forth? Yeah, so, so basically um, the TFH also produce the ligand that binds to CXCR5, so they produce CXCL13, and that can attract B cells that express CXCR5. So you can envisage that if there are TFH around in the islets, they could be attracting B cells. They also produce um, a soluble factor called IL-21, interleukin-21, which can activate um, CD8 T cells and NK cells. So you can imagine them um, potentially influencing other cell types in the um, infiltrated islets. And of course, in, in humans, this islet infiltration, you only really see very close to the diagnosis of diabetes. Um, you know, the infiltration tends to fade later on. So um, it's quite hard to visualize this in sections, but, but hopefully we'll uh, be able to do some of that work in the future and see if we can see TFH actually in the pancreatic islets. Yeah, I just was speaking with a scientist yesterday and we were talking about the fact that the NPOD um, group here in the U.S. has a, a very nice slice program in place now so people can um, apply for sl these slices. Um, it, would that be some kind of model system you might be interested in? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, um, We've set up a collaboration to try and do some of these things with Sarah Richardson and Noel Morgan and Pia Leet um, in Exeter, who uh, I think they use NPOD um, material as well, but they also have this archived material in Exeter um, from Alan Fowlis that, you know, these are samples that were taken a long, long time ago and have been carefully curated and, and looked after. And I think by looking in these sorts of um, well-characterized human samples, um, it's just going to be really exciting to see if we can see evidence of TFH and, and potentially whether they're uh, affecting B cell uh, infiltration and, and CD8 T cell infiltration in the islets. Yeah, I, that will be a very um, interesting study. Let's talk a, a little bit about um, your new paper, Nature Immunology, October 2020, Follicular Helper T Cell Profiles Predict Response to Co-Stimulation Blockade in T1D or Type 1 Diabetes. Um, a really neat paper. I'd love to dig into some of the methodology and um, talk about your bioinformatics uh, analysis. So do you want to just sort of give us a quick overview of the paper? Sure. So um, I guess this really came out of us thinking about TFH in diabetes and thinking about what sorts of pathways might we use to interrupt the development of these cells. And we assembled quite a lot of evidence to show that these TFH are particularly sensitive to blockade of CD28 signaling. So T cells express this protein on the surface, CD28, that's an important co-stimulatory uh, molecule to, to promote T cell activation. 
and it's important for all types of T cells, but it seems to be particularly important for TFH cells. And we started to get lots of evidence for this from lots of different directions. And so we thought, let's look at uh, clinical trials where co-stimulation has been blocked. And luckily, uh, there's already been this trial of abatacept, which is a co-stimulation blockade reagent. Um, and this was organized by TrialNet, which I'm sure uh, you're, you're aware of and your listeners will be aware of as international yes. research consortium. And what's fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, what's fantastic about TrialNet is it, even though this, this study was published in 2011, TrialNet still had um, frozen blood samples from the trial participants and they were able to send some to us for us to analyze and, and kind of look at our TFH angle with these samples. Um, That's so important. I love that type of collaboration. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just fantastic that people that gave a sample so long ago are informing new discoveries in diabetes all of this time later. Um, and so we, we analysed these samples and we looked for these follicular helper T cells. And um, just thinking about the Abatacet trial, one of the things, um, it, as I said, this trial was in, in 2011, but this is not a drug that's being used routinely in patients. And the reason it's not being used in diabetes patients is because there was a lot of heterogeneity in the response to Abatacet. So overall, it was beneficial. People, um, it, it delayed diabetes by 9.6 months. So, you know, there was some, some benefit, but um, it was very varied. So the people that received placebo, their beta cell function declined over the two years. So they lost, you know, I don't know, 80% of their beta cell mass by the end of the two years. And some of the people receiving a Batacept looked ju just the same as the people on placebo. So they also lost uh, sort of their beta cell function at just the same rate. But others really benefited. So they hardly lost any C-peptide at all over the two years. And so what we were trying to do is to say, okay, if we look at the people that went on to have a really good response, compared to those that didn't respond at all, can we see differences in their immune profiles, in particular their follicular helper T-cell profiles? And so this was, uh, this was what we were, were trying to do. And um, what we were able to do by putting in, so we did flow cytometry on all of these samples and looked at their uh, looked at lots of different T-cell markers, including markers of follicular helper T-cells. And then um, our data science collaborator developed a predictive modelling approach that was able to use this data, use this information to predict whether somebody was going to have a, a good response or a poor response. And then we were able to look at... Um, the cell populations that contributed predictive power to that model 
and five of the top six populations expressed CXCR5, which is this key molecule um, expressed on TFH, the follicular helper T cells. So it seemed to me, it seemed to be particularly the TFH cells that were contributing predictive power to that model. Meaning that, you know, if we can look at somebody's follicular helper T cells before treatment, we may be able to predict whether that person would be suitable for treatment with co-stimulation blockade drugs or not. Yeah, that is, that is really elegant. I think, um, yeah, I, I, I'm very curious about you with the predictive modeling approach. What, what exactly, can you sort of flesh that out a little bit? What did they do? So I will do my best. I will come clean. This was done by our, um, our bioinformatics collaborator. So this is slightly out of my comfort zone. No but problem. Just no, a we'll little, test, just we'll a test how well he's, he's trained me. Okay. <laughs> um, so essentially we took the gated flow cytometry data. So we did our staining and we gated manually. So we had... Um, frequencies of cell populations for all these different uh, types of types of cell and then the predictive modeling approach was developed using gradient boosting and nested leave out one cross-validation so I think um, essentially we looked at the 10 people with the best response and the 10 people with the worst response so we had 20 samples and then one sample was removed. And on the remaining 19 samples, um, we performed model training and hyperparameter tuning. And then the model that performed best was used to predict the outcome for that sample that was left out. And then that is iteratively repeated for each sample. And then when you have your model at the end, you look at the feature importance and see you know, which um, features or which cell populations are contributing most power to this final model. That, that sounds very rigorous and um, I, I'm sure it took some time, did it? Um, so our, our data science collaborator, I have to say, is a whiz. Every time we sent him data, he was able to um, sort of run these things in a matter of days and get back to us with results. So he, he really knows his stuff. That's fantastic. Um, and the, your, your data per, uh, collaborators on the paper? Yes, Nicholas Thomas. Okay, anybody out there who needs someone in that realm, check him out. Absolutely. <laughs> Nicholas I, can, I can thoroughly recommend him. That's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit more about um, this whole idea of, you know, these T follicular cells almost like setting up the germinal centers. I, I just wanted to just sort of, you know, this might be out of um, the realm of what you're looking at, but you know, they're, they're found in Pyre's patches, correct? Mm -hmm. And so there's been some kind of, you know, people have been talking, oh, the microbiome and, and maybe there's some kind of gut crosstalk that's driving or, you know, um, the advent yeah. of type one diabetes and, and what, you know, what, what is that interplay? No one's really clear on it as far as I can see yet, but it is interesting that things happen in the gut. Um, 
and maybe there's sort of a leaky gut situation going on, um, almost in parallel to the type 1 diabetes diagnosis, there is a, a huge drop in diversity of the microbiome at onset and, and maybe just a little bit leading up to the uh, type 1 diabetes diagnosis. I mean, could it possibly be that things go wrong first in the um, Peyer's patches just deep to the, um, the gut and, and then maybe spread some kind of spreading to other centers that affect the pancreas? I mean, is there anything, any evidence you can think of that might even support some kind of thought experiment like that? Yeah, so there's a lot of unknowns in there. I mean, I think this idea of the leaky gut and the impact of the microbiome, there's a huge amount of evidence now to support these kinds of ideas. Um, and we know that the microbiome can have a huge impact on the immune response. It can certainly change um, sort of the relative levels of cytokines that are available and cytokines have an impact on T cell differentiation. So they could be influencing follicular helper T cell differentiation. You know, this is, this is possible. Um, we know that immune thresholds are changed by the microbiome and, um, you know, the co-stimulatory ligands and the way that immune responses are thresholded. These are very important for TFH differentiation. So I think it's certainly plausible that there's a connection between um, this sort of gut dysbiosis and microbiome effects and T-cell differentiation. I think there's quite a lot more work that needs to be done there. Yeah. Um, I just wasn't sure if maybe you, had, you knew something that uh, I hadn't uh, stumbled across in terms of uh, if people are looking at that, uh, you know, what sort of what comes first, the chicken or the egg in terms of these, uh, the follicular cells, do they, you know, do they change just at the site or is this a, a global thing? Are they happening in different organs, organ sites? It's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what we do know is that the changes that are seen in the blood precede the development of diabetes. So if you look in autoantibody positive individuals at risk relatives of people with diabetes, um, you can start to see these TFH abnormalities, these sort of elevations in inactivated TFH prior um, to the development of frank diabetes. But I think in terms of the things you're talking about, you know, specific locations, where is this happening and what are the kinetics of this? Um, I think we just don't know at present. They don't really have sort of a barcode style, you know, um, you know, receptor or anything that, that indicates their, their neighborhood or their location, do they? I mean, not really. I guess there are ways that you can infer sometimes from a cell's phenotype where it has been. You know, so you can look at particular markers and say, oh, this has been imprinted with sort of a gut homing phenotype or um, you, you can draw those sorts of inferences. Um, but probably there's, there's nothing quite at the level of resolution that we would need to, yeah. to nail this question. 
So, yeah. So what are, um, what's next for you guys or what else are you uh, pursuing in the laboratory right now after this really neat paper? Yeah. So, so we're really interested in probing how far, how useful this can be. So um, we want to sort of push it a bit more, try it in different cohorts. Um, we'd like to try and understand a bit more about why we're seeing what we're seeing. So if we see follicular helper T cell profiles of a particular type with very high ICOS expression, this, this tells us that this person may not be um, a good responder to co-stimulation blockade. We want to know, is this just about co-stimulation blockade or is this about all immunotherapies in general? Yeah. So in other words, is this follicular helper profile telling us perhaps about a person's disease stage, how, how progressed they are, um, and whether perhaps this might help guide um, our intervention with, with other, other sort of immunotherapies, or is it specific to co-stimulation blockade? Yeah, you really uh, have to sort of start dissecting, um, because you know, now we know that type 1 diabetes is very heterogeneous. Uh, many ways to get type 1 diabetes and then almost, you know, many manifestations once you get it. So you're, you're yeah, going into um, dissect some of, uh, some of the pathways, correct? Absolutely. And I think this idea of it being a very heterogeneous disease with different endotypes is something that's really gaining a lot of momentum now in the field. Um, and it's interesting from my perspective that one of the clearest um, endotypes is this difference between people developing type 1 diabetes under the age of seven mm. um, and they have quite a different um, style of islet infiltration so they have this hyperimmune hyper b cell phenotype they have lots of cd20 positive b cells in the islets whereas people that are diagnosed later than 13 um, don't have this this same sort of phenotype um, and you know given the connections between tfh and b cells i think this is going to be quite an interesting area for us to to pursue as well yeah and and for older um you know patients if around 13 and up what phenotype mm -hmm. do they possess that differs from the under seven so they have um, a lower proportion of B cells in their islets and um, they have a higher proportion of insulin containing islets at diagnosis. So there seems to be a difference in um, uh, sort of aggressiveness of disease depending on whether you're diagnosed below seven or, or above 13. And I think if we can understand more about these sort of endotypes, um, then we can start to target particular strategies to the correct set of patients. Yeah. Um, is there any, do you have um, access to your laboratory now? Are you, are you back in or how is it working for you? Yeah, so we're um, in, but at reduced staffing numbers at the moment. Um, I'm not in, I'm 
are not needed in the uh, actual hands-on <laughs> experimental work. So uh, I'm, I'm still working from home, but my group are all, all back. And um, yeah, we're just working at reduced capacity. And starting to move, move things back into action. Exactly, exactly. Um, I just, you know, this has been so fascinating, you know, discussing this, and I think the paper is excellent. Can't wait to see what ne what's next coming from your laboratory. I wonder, um, do you have any, you know, sort of shout out or any kind of advice for the young researchers, postdocs, and grad students who are kind of uh, navigating this uh, pandemic uh, and all the disruption so early in their career? Yeah, it's tough. Um, I mean, I guess in terms of the specific COVID situation, um, there's nothing particular that I can offer other than just to say that I think always science is best done by people who are passionate about what they do. So I think um, if you're passionate about doing diabetes research, then um, keep going, follow the models we know work, which are, you know, seek out the best people to work with in the field, seek personal funding, fellowship funding, get a good mentor. Um, I think for sure COVID poses a challenge, but science is all about overcoming challenges. That is so well said. Uh, I, I really agree with that last statement. It is, science is all about overcoming challenges. And um, so in, in some ways, uh, scientists are particularly well suited for the pandemic. Um, exactly. Right. The silver lining. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share, uh, you know, with, uh, with our listeners and um, regarding, you know, what's next uh, for, for your laboratory or anything else in general? So I guess I, I just um, thought an extra bit of advice for, for researchers would be to encourage them to follow their own instincts in science, to make up their own mind about things. When you read a paper, you bring your own unique perspective and unique insights to it. So um, I would encourage people to not be afraid to draw their own conclusions, you know, go with the data, don't necessarily go with the author's interpretation of that data. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Thank you so much. Very wise. Um, I, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, uh, Lucy, and thank you again for talking to us. Um, and we'll be watching your uh, work very closely as um, the next papers come out because um, this looks like a really interesting model system and uh, potentially very powerful in identifying you know patient populations and formulating uh, therapies for them thank you again thank you very much monica it's been a pleasure 